ladies and gentlemen, and welcome one and all to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. And I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan. And I would like to welcome you one and all to tonight's broadcast, wherever, whenever, and however you might be listening to me. And a special thank you to all those listeners of Rick Adams Uncensored who might be listening over into this broadcast I promise to make it worth your while. I think we have a very, very interesting show lined up for you this evening. But first, let me just say to everyone, of course, uh, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you can check out my previous work over the last few years on all sorts of subjects that are hidden from history, so to speak, to coin a, or to use a term that was coined by Kevin Annette of HiddenFromHistory.com. And, uh, and we are trying to peek behind the curtains, uh, on a daily basis here on Corbett Report Radio. So I thank you for joining me and helping me in that quest. And of course, you can see my previous work, uh, in my podcast and interviews and articles and videos on CorbettReport.com. And, uh, and all, all of the resources that I quote in every episode of this broadcast can also be found there. For example, if I mention a article or a video, I'll post it up there with the show notes for tonight's broadcast. So having said that, I would like to move into tonight's broadcast because I think I have a very interesting topic lined up for you all this evening. And it's a topic, like a lot of the topics that we cover, that are, of course, not being covered by the mainstream media. But this is one that I don't even see getting enough coverage in the alternative media either. And that's not really to, to cast dispersions on anyone in the alternative media I think this is just one of those topics that tends to get lost because we are too busy taking a look at the trees to see the forest. Or perhaps to put it in an even more revealing analogy, we're too busy looking at the pieces on the chessboard to see the game that is being played. And perhaps that's the most fitting analogy because what we are looking at uh, tonight is the global geopolitical chess game that's being played by the major powers of the world and this is a game where what we see on our level with the type of low-level propaganda that we see coming through in the corporate media is really just the shadows on the wall. And they only give us an inkling of what's going on behind the scenes where the major power players are making the decisions. So just as in a chess game, you might be so concentrated at looking at the chess board and observing each piece and thinking about each piece as it's being moved on the board, that you might lose track of the greater game that's being t- that's taking place, and you might not even be aware of the people who are moving those chess pieces. So in an effort to try to get our attention off of the pawns that are being moved around on this geopolitical chessboard and to the players themselves and what they might be thinking and the strategies they're using, I'd like to point out, uh, well, a few articles that have come out in the last few days that I think are extremely important but are not getting a lot of attention and let's change that tonight by turning our attention to them. So the first article that I'd like to go over tonight is from Dawn.com, but I get it via BlacklistedNews.com, and my hat's off to them for covering this and recognizing that this is an important story. I think this, ultimately, if you understand this story and it, all of its context and significant, I think you understand the point that I'm going to try to make in tonight's broadcast. And it's from November 8th, 2011, and the title of this article is Pakistan seeks full Shanghai Cooperation Organization membership. Once again, I think that's a very, very important story, and to understand the context of this story and why it's important is really our task tonight. So let me read that headline one more time. Pakistan seeks full Shanghai Cooperation Organization membership. 
And that particular headline nexus is in with a couple of other headlines of articles that I'd like to try to get into tonight. One, Taiwan drill to simulate China invasion, and another, U.S. to build up military in Australia. Once again, we're taking a look at the geopolitical chessboard tonight, so let's continue right after these messages. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett, coming to you from Japan, and I'd like to welcome you this evening wherever you might be. And, of course, uh, as always, Corbett Report Radio welcomes all listeners uh, to the program, and if you want to get in on tonight's broadcast, the phone lines are wide open, so you can join in at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. And tonight we're going over the geopolitical chessboard, and as I was setting up in that first segment before that break, uh, we had a little bit of a, an expose of, of what tonight's topic is really about. And I think it's important to keep this type of information in mind, because as I say, we tend to get fixated on the individual pieces on the chessboard and not look at the game overall. So tonight we're going to take a look at the headlines behind the headlines and the story behind the story to see if we can come to a better understanding of the bigger game that's taking place, or to use another analogy, to take a step back to see if we can take a look and see the bigger picture that's emerging from all these individual brush strokes. Because if you think about it, a lot of people, of course, are concerned about the moves towards war or military intervention of some kind in Syria, and now the ramping up of the war rhetoric yet again for moving into Iran. And I think people are justifiably concerned about that, and I think we do need to be keeping our eye on those situations and exposing all of the lies that inevitably are surround these types of military interventions, because, of course, the, what they're, they're telling us is not the reason that they're actually going after these countries. And so we have to expose the lies about the so-called human rights organizations, for example, that are telling us about all the so-called atrocities that nobody can verify that are supposedly happening in these countries, or the the nuclear weapons program that supposedly is being uh, developed in Iran, and it turns out to be a, a cotton mill and that sort of thing. So we have to be exposing that, and I think we do have to keep our attention on that. But let's use another analogy. If we live in a town where there's a rash of fires that are burning down people's houses and people's businesses... Well, we can respond and should respond to each fire one by one and put them out. But if it starts to become apparent at some point that there's so many fires being set on so many different nights that clearly there's an arsonist loose in the town, we have to start taking a look at the arsonist, or at least is the trail of the arsonist, to see if we can find out more about this person and then eventually capture them and bring them to justice. And in that way, I think we can't just take a look at each individual conflict as it arises, the Afghan war, the Iraq war, the Libya war, the coming Syrian war, the coming Iran war, or whatever the individual military intervention might be. We have to understand the strategy behind it in order to really effectively stop the people who are making these moves. So that's what we're doing tonight, and as I said before the break, we're looking at this particular story from Dawn.com via Blacklisted News. Pakistan seeks full Shanghai Cooperation Organization membership. And let me just read the first couple of paragraphs of this story. 
It's headline, uh, datelined St. Petersburg from Russia, and it reads, quote, Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani arrived here on Sunday in a bid to seek full membership of the important regional security grouping of Shanghai Cooperation Organization. The Prime Minister is accompanied by Minister for Petroleum and Natural Resources, Dr. Asim Hussein, Board of Investments uh, Chairman Salim Mandivwala, and Senator Sugra Imam. Mr. Gilani will address the 10th SCO Summit on Monday and seek Pakistan's full membership of the organization, whose profile and scope have assumed great importance with the presence of China, Russia, and other Central Asian states as strong regional partners. And we'll end the quote there, and you can go and read that full article. As I say, I'll have that posted up along with the show notes for tonight's episode shortly after we get off air. But I, I think this is an extremely important story. But again, to understand why this is important, we obviously have to ask the question, well, what is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization? And in order to answer that, let's just turn to Wikipedia, which, of course, is not a source that I would trust for any contentious political issues. But at any rate, it does provide actual footnotes and sources so you can go and check out individual statements and weigh them on their individual uh, basis. So just for a broad overview of what the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is, reading from Wikipedia, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO, is an intergovernmental mutual security organization which was founded in 2001 in Shanghai by the leaders of China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Except for Uzbekistan, the other countries had been members of the Shanghai Five, founded in 1996. After the inclusion of Uzbekistan in 2001, the members renamed the organization. So, again, you can go and take a look at more information about the organization itself in that Wikipedia entry, for example, or other sites on the Internet have information about this Shanghai Cooperation Organization and as, as that said, the, the main members so far are China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. But they also have so-called observer states who are kind of on the periphery of this organization with one foot in the door, perhaps to in the future looking for full membership. And those observer states at the moment are India, Iran, Mongolia, and Pakistan. There are also dialogue partners, which are, I guess, one step further out in this ring of uh, mutual interest, and those are Belarus and Sri Lanka. And then there are guest attendances who are really on the periphery of the organization, and that's ASEAN and CIS and Turkmenistan. So again, you can take a look at that and, and some of those states, but I think the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, to me, is one of the elephants in the room that I don't see a lot of people talking about, but it's an extremely important organization, and I think it will only become more and more so as China and Russia and the core groups of the, this organization start exerting more and more of their might on the world stage. And, of course, we all know how China has been being and is at the moment being built up to be the economic and industrial powerhouse of the new world order to directly quote George Soros. Once again, don't take my word for it. Go search it on YouTube or wherever. George Soros, you can hear him saying that uh, China is the, the engine of the new world order. And there's no doubt that the globalist elites have been trying to build up China as the model for their new world order for many, many years. But here it is, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization becoming this shadow nemesis organization to the North Atlantic terrorist, I mean, sorry, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and, uh, and for more information about specifically when and how it was founded, let's jump a little later in the article where it tells us that the organization 
uh, was formally signed into existence in June of 2002 in St. Petersburg at a meeting of the SCO member states. And that's when, again, that Shanghai Five loose-knit organization became the much more concrete organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and they admitted Uzbekistan into that partnership. So let's ask ourselves, it's June 2002, let's put ourselves in those shoes of that particular time period. Let's ask ourselves what monumental, earth-shaking events had really just been playing out in the previous nine months. Well, obviously, we have to look to 9-11, the false flag terrorist incident that was used as the justification for, amongst other things, the October 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. And that, my friends, is where I think we can start to see the beginnings of what is this greater grand chessboard being maneuvered into position um, over the last several years. Because we have to understand the Afghan war, not just in terms of the low-level base propaganda, the way it was sold to us with this Al-Qaeda boogeyman shadow terrorist organization that, uh, that was the justification for the bombing and invasion and 10-year occupation of this country, of Afghanistan. And again, just to put that in perspective, it is now the longest uh, uh, military intervention in American history. There has never been a U.S. military intervention that has lasted longer than the intervention in Afghanistan, and all in the name of fighting this shadowy al-Qaeda nemesis, which even the CIA, even the head of the CIA came out last year and admitted uh, consisted of 100 people in the Pakistan-Afghanistan area. So even if you want to believe in the Al-Qaeda boogeyman, it's 100 people, and this is the reason the U.S. has deployed and all of the NATO partners have deployed their forces in that country for a decade? No, clearly there's more to it than that low-level base propaganda. And I think if you were, uh, if you're listening to my voice right now, you probably already have an inkling of that. But uh, so let's step back. There must be something more to this. And certainly, once we start to peel back that first layer of the onion, what we come up against is the idea of Afghanistan as this rich uh, natural resource haven. Um, that was just admitted with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink last year when there was this extraordinary story. Uh, it ran in many places, but one of them was Reuters, uh, which ran a story, Afghan's treasure trove, a reality check. And they, uh, they ran a story that read, uh, a team of U.S. geologists and Pentagon officials have concluded that Afghanistan is sitting on untapped mineral deposits worth more than $1 trillion, officials said. So there's the $1 trillion in mineral deposits, and of course there's the heroin, the opium trade from Afghanistan. And now Afghanistan comprises, I'm not sure the exact figure at the moment, but it was in the range of 93% of the world's heroin supply coming through and via Afghanistan. So we have to understand the occupation of Afghanistan in terms of the occupation of those resources and, of course, the opium trade, which has always been a key part of U.S. military intervention for the past, well, half century or so. And as Peter Dale Scott noted on in an interview I did with him earlier this year, it's uh, no coincidence that uh, when the U.S. was heavily involved in Vietnam, the so-called Golden Triangle of that Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia area was the center of opium trafficking in the world. And then when they moved to Afghanistan in the 80s for their covert operation funding the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union, the Golden Crescent, which included Afghanistan, became the center of opium trafficking in the world. And that's a little too coincidental to be coincidental, if you know what I mean. So I think there's definitely something there. But again, that's only another layer of the, uh, the propaganda onion, because I think there's another layer underneath that. It's not just about those resources. It's not just about getting those resources. 
Because, of course, we know that the occupied government behind the scenes is not trying to get these resources for our benefit. It's not like it's going to benefit the average businessman in the Western world. There's a bigger agenda at play, and that's where China and Russia and the other big players come into it. So let's take a moment to recoup our thoughts, and we'll come back right after these messages. Welcome back to the broadcast, my friends. This is Corbett Report Radio, and I am your host, James Corbett. And I would once again like to let you know that the phone lines are wide open, so if you want to get in on tonight's broadcast, it's 1-800-313-9443. And tonight we're going over the geopolitical grand chessboard, and we're taking a look at China and Russia and the other members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and what role they might be playing in all of these various wars and conflicts that we've seen going on around the world for at least the last decade. And as I say, as my thesis here tonight is that there is much, much more going on behind the scenes, especially with these countries and the the geopolitical game that's being played than we're being presented with. But moving on from what we were talking about before with the Afghanistan uh, invasion and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization being set up in the immediate wake of that invasion. And I think there must be some sort of connection there as perhaps China and Russia and those other states knew that they were being directly threatened by this uh, military intervention in that region. I think that's where we can start to locate the bigger, broader game of what's being played. Because, again, on one level, it's supposedly about the Al-Qaeda boogeyman, but we know that that doesn't hold water. And then on the other level, it's supposedly about resources with a nudge-nudge, wink-wink to the good old boys who think they're going to get some something out of these types of invasions. But just as in Iraq, of course, we don't get any of the money from any of this, even if that was something that we wanted. And uh, certainly, don't get me wrong, I don't want the destruction or war or death to be propagated in my name for any reason, let alone because I think I might get some money out of it. That's a ridiculous and horrible thing. But even if that were the way that people were thinking in the good old boys club, that's demonstrably not the way it plays out. So what is the real meaning of these invasions? And again, I think we have to start to look at China and its growing influence and Russia and the other so-called BRIC countries of Brazil and India as they start to exert more and more power on the world stage, I think we start understanding that there is a much, much bigger conflict being played out here, and one that, uh, to the most part, is being played completely under the radar. And that's why, once again, I'd like to draw your attention to those StratRisks.com articles that I mentioned before. And for people who haven't checked it out, StratRisks.com, S-T-R-A-T, R-I-S-K-S.com is, uh, it looks to be a great resource. It's a relatively new a uh, type of internet news aggregator slash think tank. It has original articles and um, very interesting articles from around the web on global intelligence and geopolitical matters. And uh, on November 9th, they had a story, Taiwan Drill to Simulate China Invasion. And that goes into some of the uh, the latest moves in that, I think, for anyone who's in this in this region, I think for a long time, that has been the the idea of the global uh, conflict of the 21st century being set off in the South China Sea by China trying to 
exert more and more control or maybe even invade Taiwan, which would be the uh, undoubtedly the 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 powder keg uh, spark that uh, the spark that would ignite the powder keg that is this this East Asia region, which as I say is the elephant in the room. And yet another indication of that, November 10th, 2011, also from stratrisks.com, U.S. to build up military in Australia. That comes from the Wall Street Journal, and the subhead is Move Aimed at Countering China in Asia, Clarifying Free Access to South China Sea. So from that article, it says, President Barack Obama will announce an accord for a new and permanent U.S. military presence in Australia when he visits next week, a step step aimed at countering China's influence and reasserting U.S. interest in the region, said to people familiar with his plans. The agreement will lead to an increase in U.S. naval operations off the coast of Australia and give American troops and ships permanent and constant access to Australian facilities, the people said. While no new American bases will be built under the plan, the arrangement will allow U.S. forces to place equipment in Australia and set up more joint exercises, they said. And there's a really in- revealing infographic that they put up with this article from Reuters that shows military presence in the uh, Asian Pacific region. And it shows uh, in Hawaii there are 42,360 U.S. Uh, personnel stationed there. In Japan, 40,178. In South Korea, 28,500. In Guam, 4,137. In Australia, only 178, 178 U.S. personnel and at sea, there are 12,858. So there is an incredible military presence in the region, of course, as anyone who are in the forces know, but, uh, but very relatively small in Australia, which again is going to be one of those, um, one of those states that are going to be more and more caught in the crosshairs of this great game that's being played between the Western forces and the developing forces. And as I say, we have to see the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a type of counterbalance to this, uh, to the NATO forces that are waging their wars against around the world, their wars of aggression, which we're being told are to topple the Gaddafi dictatorship or to to help free the people of Syria or to to get rid of the Al Qaeda boogeyman from Afghanistan or whatever ridiculous layer of propaganda we're being fed on those particular issues. But as I say, we have to look behind the, the, the headlines and see the real game that's being played here. And I think it's also important not simply to take the basic idea that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. If we are against all these wars of aggression that are being waged around the world in our name, then you might think, well, we do need some counterbalance. We do need some counterforce. So maybe this Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a great idea. But I think that plays into the game that's being played, because as I mentioned, China has been and is being built up as as the industrial engine of the New World Order. So I think there's an even further layer of propaganda behind all of this. Once again, if you want to get into on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back, friends. 
Observer Report Radio, and I am your host, James Corbett, coming to you as always from Western Japan, and you can find more about me and my work at CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're going over some of the stories that I think are important to understand as we see the wars and rumors of wars ramping up yet again. And yet again we see the, the beginnings of the ramp up of the psychological operation to prepare the public for the invasion of Iran which I have maintained since the very second episode of my podcast four and a half years ago and have maintained ever since that World War III starts in Iran. And I think the reason for that and the way to understand that is to understand ties between, for example, Iran and China and Russia, the real dominant military bloc that really is the only military bloc at the moment that's able to even think of putting up some sort of fight against NATO and the NATO forces. So we're going over that, and I have an interesting clip lined up for you, because you don't have to take my word for it that this is really the battlefield of the 21st century. We can get that from the globalists' own mouths. But before we get to that clip, we have a couple callers on the line, so let's go straight to them. First, we have, I believe, Mark from Georgia. Mark, are you there, and what's on your mind tonight? Am I here? I, I'd like to know myself. Um, <laughs> yes, I think that uh, there's an unstated part of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and that is for as long as it is mutually convenient. Mm. And if we forget that line, it always goes without saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as long as it's mutually convenient, then we can lose sight. You remember the line in 1984, we've always been at war with East Asia. Mm-hmm. And where exactly. people conveniently forget that just a moment before, East Asia was our uh, was Oceania's ally. Yes, and, and they were uh, Eurasia, and of course it can change at a moment's notice. And people look at 1984 and think, oh, that's just outlandish science fiction. But unfortunately, we've seen in recent decades how the pro- the public really can be programmed to think like that and really can take that double think on board. But I think you're right. I, we have to be cautious about this enemy of my enemy is my friend line of reasoning, which we often fall into. And it can hold sway for a certain amount of time in certain things, and I think we should be looking at forming alliances with people that, that can help us forward our ideas, but we have to be careful about it, and we have to always keep that in mind, because otherwise they can set up a system where we support one side of the debate against the other, and they control both sides of the debate. What if they control what China is doing and all of the, the menace that they're creating? Doesn't that mean that we are then supporting the overall agenda? Yeah, and that's the thing is that um, they control... The, when they control the flow of information, which is they, they have one thing they they have, you know, it's like they've gone haywires over how do we let the internet get so out of control? People could find out what we're hiding from us, and then people realize well, there's a reason why things are obscured, and that's why you know I examine history, and I've come to realize the suppressed view of history tends to be the one that's correct. Because you don't need to suppress something that shows itself to be wrong. You don't have to suppress a theory that, if examined, will show itself to be ridiculous and absurd. Uh, you have to suppress a view that, if people were to stop and think and question, it would go, well, that makes more sense than your model. You know, you have this model of reality, and here's Galileo saying, you know, the Bible does not, the, the sun does not go around the earth just because the Bible says so, because it doesn't. It's exactly right. Read exactly. into it, and, and I, that's where. Yes, I think well, that I, people I, really ought to lay off the do-it-yourself brain surgery because I look at people, and you know, 
Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Drew Weston. He's here in Atlanta. I've been meaning to contact him to find out. Uh, you've heard of the political bias syndrome. And maybe I it's something that you might want to what examine. It means. Yeah. Is yeah, it something well, he did a he did he did a scientific study with a PET, a positron positron emission topography, and he took people left leaning, right leaning, and people that were politically neutral. Either they didn't care, or they realized that both sides were corrupt. But basically, when shown either neutral or or positive information on people that were viewed favorably. The, the regular rules of cognitive abilities applied. What he found, though, was that when people were shown negative information about people that were viewed favorably, whether it's Reagan to to neocons, they would if they saw something negative. This is just a for instance. It's not necessarily Reagan or any other particular figure. But when they were shown negative information on somebody they viewed favorably. The cognitive part of the brain did not light up. Instead, mm. the emotional part of the brain registered, and hey. they dismissed without any examination. And here's the thing that it's really blew my mind. When people dismissed without cognitive examination, the reward center of the brain was triggered in a manner very similar to drug addiction, and the same uh. mental mechanism applies to people on the left and people on the right. But Absolutely, and I, I think I did read about that that study, and uh, that's it's a good point to bring that up. I mean, that's something we really have to keep in mind. So I I, I will look at seeing if I can get him on the program at some point in the future because I I would really like to examine that in more detail. But it, I think yeah. we also have to be cautious not to just think that only applies to other people. I think that applies to all yeah. of us and all of our biases that we don't know we have no, even. It, so. We have yeah, to be aware of that, but uh, Mark, I'm, I'm afraid we have to get to the next caller, but thank you so much for calling in, and uh, please call in again some other time. All right, let's let's uh, let's move along. I think we have a caller on the line uh, from NB. I'm assuming that's New Brunswick, and it's Werner or Werner. Are you on the line, and uh, what do you have on your mind tonight? Yeah, good evening. <laughs> I was very inspirational. You know, the programs on RBN, and ah, uh, good. it's the first time I'm listening to you. And well, thank you for listening, and I'm I'm glad that uh, that it is. I hope it's thought provoking at the very least. <laughs> well, as I say, you know, uh, the whole uh, program and most of hosts uh, on the on the RBN is very thought provoking. Excellent. Uh, What's on your mind tonight? Uh, I was thinking about, uh, and uh, this gave uh, quite an insight uh, on Rick Adams. He has on Hungarian George. George Soros? Yes, yes. And uh, he mentioned there a while back about uh, the way the United States uh, had built up uh, basically the military industries of the former Soviet Union in the uh, late 20s and so the 30s. Exactly right, yes. And uh, what was the end result? The Cold War and all of that uh, wonderful... Uh, the Cold War. Uh, mm-hmm. At that time, they uh, fed the Russian bear. Now they've they've uh, they've been seeing the Chinese dragon. And exactly right. Yeah, they're building up the enemy as they always have and always will. And George Soros has admitted it time and time again that China is the model for the new world order. China is the heart of the new world order. He said it in those words many many times. So you're exactly right to point that out. And but, exactly right. The Soviet Union was built up by the West as well. Yeah, and as I say, when you uh, uh, feed those beasts, uh, you have to be very careful. You know, 
they just might turn around and, and eat you too. That's right. That's another part of the equation, because maybe China is completely built up and is completely controlled by the globalists. But that doesn't mean that if they get enough power, they won't try, genuinely try to, to exert their power and to go off the script and maybe start uh, start striking out in ways that the globalists don't expect. So, of course, when you build up these beasts, you don't know how they're going to unleash their their power on the world. And uh, and it's absolutely there's no doubt that we've not we, but the uh, the the globalists and those who've been in positions of power have been building this up for for decades now by moving offshore all of these important manufacturing jobs to China. And that brings up another question: If we get involved in a military conflict with China, where on earth are we going to get all of the goods that we take for granted? The cheap Chinese slave labor goods, everything from your iPod to your cheap Walmart T-shirt, is comes from China. Where is all of this manufacturing going to come from if we're actually engaged in military conflict with them? Um, it's just unthinkable at this time. So, so a lot to think about on this on and, this issue. And uh, as I say, you know, uh, no matter how good uh, is the ones in the back, they think they got those beasts trained. You know, sometimes the beasts turn on the trainer. Excellent point. Excellent point. Well, thank you for calling in, Werner. It's great to hear you. I hope we'll hear you again on the program in the future. But right now, I wanted to go to a, a clip that I had lined up for this this evening because it's extremely interesting um, to hear not this coming not just from my own mouth, but from the mouths of the globalists themselves. And I don't think you get much closer to the heart of the uh, the globalist uh, beast than Sir James Wolfenson, the former head of the World Bank, and uh, he served in that office from 1995 to 2005. And he's been making the circuit in recent years, uh, trying to pump up this, this, uh, well, ridiculous narrative of, of the way that the development is going to, to save the world, a development via the World Bank, of course. At any rate, he's very much part of this system. And he, we have a clip from a speech that he gave in January 2010 to the Stanford Graduate Business School, where he's talking about this very coming new paradigm of the 21st century in which China and the Asian countries will be increasingly dominant. So let's go to the clip. The first thing I'd like to say is that, harking back to my own experience, I grew up in a world in which for decades uh, there was uh, one-sixth of the world by the year 2000, a billion people who had 80% of the world's income. And then there were five billion people who were in the so-called developing world that had 20% of the global income. And I took an interest in that 20% through activities in foundations and other things, largely because I couldn't understand how the world would continue in an inequitable distribution of 5 billion having 20% and 1 billion having 80% of the world's GDP. It stood there in the post-war years with varying numbers, of course, in terms of the global population, but proportionately, that was the sort of relationship, this 80-20, which existed for decades. But came the last decade of uh, the last century and moving into this new century, we're seeing for the first time a swing which now has that 80-20 somewhere closer to 70-30 or 72-28 or some such number. And that is an important and rapid change which has occurred. 
And it's brought about a change which has been very evident in the way in which international institutions function and in which indeed the global economy functions. So much so that as we look out, the so-called 80-20 that I and my contemporaries grew up with is now looking at a very, very different future. It is the future that you will face. It is a future of 9 billion people on the planet by the year 2050. Of the 3 billion extra that have been added to the planet or will be added to the planet from the year 2000, about 100 million goes to the rich countries and 2.9 billion goes to the developing countries. So come 2050, it's not 1 billion and 5 billion, it's 1.1 billion and 8 billion or close to it. That is a huge change, dramatic change. The other consequential change is that the structure of the economy is being driven both by the population development and also by modern technology which has allowed the conveyance of ideas and innovation to move to the developing world. And so the projections today are that that old 80-20 with which I grew up for decades will become 35-65. 35% for the billion one in the rich countries and 65% for the people in the developing countries. That is turning the world on its head in terms of the world that I grew up in. But it is the world that you're going to work in. And it is not a trivial change. It is a change of monumental importance. So much so that by 2050, China and India, the two countries that I have, uh, are of course the leading countries in the developing world, will constitute 50% of the global GDP. 50% of the global GDP. That is the consensus estimate. But let's say we're off 5%, it's 45% of the global GDP. It's nonetheless a monumental switch in terms of economic power. It happened last in 1815 when China and India were 50% of the global GDP. And it happened before that in the year 1500. And in the period from 1815, at various times, it's been approaching that. But with communism and with the change in governance in China and with the greater development in terms of the Industrial Revolution in the West, you got to a point where after World War II, China and India were together 2% of the global GDP. So the growth in terms of China and India and of Asia generally is such that it is not just some modulation of former trends. It is an absolutely fundamental change in the way the world is balanced. It is not a modulation. It is a fundamental change in the way the world is balanced. And, of course, we have to take anything and everything that Sir James Wolfenson of the World Bank says with a hefty grain of salt but I think the uh, the statistics there are speak for themselves, and the dem demographics of this situation speaks for itself. 
regardless of uh, what we think uh, is likely to play out in the next few years, if things continue on their course, it's just a question of demographics that the the so-called first world and the so-called developing world are going to be greatly upset in whatever balance has persisted over the course of our lifetime and likely our parents' and even grandparents' lifetime, so that the world will look vastly different uh, 50 years from now than it does today. And that's uh, that's all things being equal. And, of course, the question is, do you think that the people at the very top of the system now, the people in those rich and developed countries, want to let the developing world get to that point? And if so, why would they? But if they don't, how are they going to stop it? Well, again, the question is, how do you get the people to rally around the flag enough to justify all these wars in all of these proxy countries and proxy conflicts in countries that are peripheral to this, but still part of the overall agenda? Because people don't want to go along with war, and people generally have no interest in seeing their own houses, their own lives, their own children's lives destroyed by war. So how do you get them motivated for that? Well, you give them all the propaganda that we've seen about Al-Qaeda boogeymen and nuclear weapons plants and all of this kind of smokescreen for what the real agenda is, which is to target China and Russia and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. But we're coming up on a break, so let's take a few minutes. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this. That's a very good question, and let's uh, let's pick it up from there. So welcome back, my friends, to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And before the break, we were listening to Sir James Wolfenson, ex-president or director or head of the World Bank, giving his speech about the demo- demographics of China and India and the other so-called developing countries and how that's going to be increasingly uh, something to think about in the 21st century And I suggest that you go and take a look at that whole speech online. It's available for it in its entirety there on YouTube. And, of course, the link will be there on CorbettReport.com shortly following tonight's episode. I I believe that was actually sent in as a a link by a listener who suggested that I watch that video. So my hat's off to that listener. But uh, that has been lost in the mists of time, as I tend to get a lot of email through CorbettReport.com. But, of course, I do appreciate people sending me the links and uh, directing my attention to videos of importance so if you do want to get in touch with me, it's uh, you can get do so through CorbettReport.com, and there's a contact form there, and of course you can also check out all of the other work that I've done there. But uh, right now I believe we have another caller on the line, so let's go straight to that caller. Ernie in Indiana, how are you this evening? Oh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thanks for playing the Smith the other night. <laughs> no problem. Well, actually, that comes as a recommendation of one of my friends here in Japan, so he'll be very happy to hear you say that. But what's on your yep. mind tonight? Okay, um, well, it looks like they've got this kind of block, and it's all revolving around Iran. Okay, think of it as a risk board. You have um, a stack of green, that's the United States, right there in Iraq. you got another stack here in Pakistan. Um, Iran's going to get off, is going gonna, is gonna to get off because they're going to have this block behind them. 
I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that's that's the way we have to start looking at it, and we have to start interrogating not just the the positioning of those countries, but also the the resources that are there and what uh, what China's been going after in recent years. And I think that's, for example, how we have to understand the the whole Libyan intervention as part of the broader context of China trying to get a foot in the door in in Africa and succeeding in in recent years to an alarming extent for the the, the U.S. at any rate, who's been trying to set up their Africom. So I think you're right. When we take a look at, for example, Syria, why are they ramping up against Syria right now? I think we have to understand Syria as the land bridge between Iran and uh, their forces in in Lebanon. And uh, without that land bridge, um, uh, Iran becomes even more isolated in the region and an even easier target, I suppose, for the Israeli-U.S. forces. So I think you're right. There's a lot of uh, strategy into why these particular places are suddenly becoming the, the enemies of the moment. I want to know how much they've socked into Djibouti which is, logistically speaking, takes a straight shot at the Congo if you're using ship and, and um, train traffic. Excellent. They want, to, they want to suck all the economic wealth out of, out of Africa. Um, the Congo is, is you know, that's the heart of the green belt there, and it's the most yeah. developed. They just take a look at Google Maps and look at their city. It's very well developed. Absolutely. Well, there's no doubt there's a lot going on in Africa right now. And, uh, for example, we just saw the creation of South Sudan, and I think a lot of people don't really understand the whole context of that and maybe have an inkling about the whole Darfur thing, but don't really understand what that was about and, and why, uh, for example, Israel has been such a big friend of South Sudan and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I think, absolutely, we need to do more more work looking at Africa and their place in all of this. Well, that's but I think the- we're... That's why the Europeans love out North Africa, because they don't have to pay a toll to the troll to get at Africa, at Central Park from there. If, they, if they, right. they had to pay yeah. a toll to the troll. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, okay, well, we're coming up against the end of the program, so Ernie, thank you for your call. Thank you to all the callers tonight for, for your calls tonight and every night. So thank you once again, and I'll see you again tomorrow night right here on Corbett Report Radio.